Welcome to today's episode of Positively Geared. Good to see you, Lloyd. Hi, Alex. How are you going? I'm really well. Lloyd, we had a great guest in the studio, Ziggy Ziegler. We had a really good chat with him about what he's doing in the design space uh, in terms of his studio building upon that episode. We've got a, another great guest in the studio with us today, Ben Hummel, uh, Director of Hummel Architects. Uh, he's been in the, the industry now for three decades. Uh, welcome, Ben. We're really delighted to have you. Yeah. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So Ben, tell us a bit about your story. Well, the story started basically three generations of architects in the family, grandfather, father, and me. So I suppose I've been brought up to do that type of work. At a young age, I was introduced to all sorts of properties, building types and construction systems, and I followed in the father's footsteps to the present day. How much of a choice did you have in your career? Well, I had plenty of choice, but I think the father was a pretty strong-minded individual and I was guided down that path. In, in our podcast series, we've spoken about the Dream Team, which is also one of the key chapters in Lloyd's book, Positively Geared. Now, having an architect would form a great part of any good Dream Team in terms of what it allows people to do particularly as they're starting to build a portfolio of properties if they want to do bigger developments where it requires something more than a basic scope of work. It could be really beneficial to align themselves with someone like you. In basic terms, what is an architect and what is your role in the whole building process? A definition of an architect would include provide an artistic and scientific approach to a problem, which would be a site. In the context of Lloyd's book, my belief is an architect should take a more pragmatic approach and provide information whereby the site potential could be maximized and the returns to the investors maximized as well. And building upon that, Ben, and you said it yourself, a lot of people perceive an architect as somebody that draws up plans. Obviously, as part of maximizing a site, it requires you to have a real intimate knowledge of local councils and development protocol. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. To have a thorough knowledge of all the council requirements, the land, and to understand basically the topography of the site and what is the most amount of square meters you can get on the site. So Lloyd, obviously over the years, you know, we talk about your first duplex development you did and obviously today, uh, fast forward two decades in the industry and being a property investor, have there been times where you've really found it beneficial to work with somebody like Ben or have that contact available? Yeah, absolutely, Alex. As Ben said, Architects do need to know uh, exactly what can fit on the block. And there's a thing that uh, council requires, which is the FSR, which is the um, floor space ratio. You've got a block of land there. There's a maximum footprint that you can actually have on the block. And this can come down to people wanting to build either an investment property or their dream home. They might want to build something really big on that block, but council may not allow that. So that's one thing that you need to check out architect needs to be across all those things. And then also when it comes down to realizing exactly how big the dwelling is going to be, then you know, how big are the bedrooms going to be, how many bedrooms you can fit there, uh, living spaces, and then how to design it for maximum benefit. And as Ben said, having a property that is designed for the maximum returns is really important. So it's about how the whole floor plan actually flows and how, how it works in terms of the configuration of the bathrooms and the, the living spaces and the bedrooms and et cetera. And Ben, what's your personal experience or professional experience in the space? If we can just stay on the tangent of possibly building or, or designing for maximum return, do you have some design principles that you typically work on in terms of for people that might be looking to embark on their first duplex development or, or a sort of medium density project that can allow them to get the most out of their investment? On the slight tangent to that point, it would be critical to have an architect that was familiar with the latest planning regulations. 
These days, the state government environmental planning policies include for developments which might not necessarily be in the local council environment and codes. So an architect familiar with the state government requirements, what I would suggest would be absolutely critical at this point, in that they are bringing out different planning regulations to the local planning council. So it's all very well to understand local requirements and 90% of the time you may well follow those. There's also the interpretation of those requirements over time. So a drafts person might become very set in their ways and they might roll out the same plan over and over. Whereas you'd hope from an architect that they're keeping abreast of different requirements and the interpretation of those to maximize the site. And if we can just sort of, I guess, further build on that distinction between a draftsman and an architect, um, they're both terms that we've used in previous podcasts. What is the distinction for, you know, the mum and dad investor at home listening to this? One would hope that the difference between an architect and a draftsperson would be similar to that of getting a solicitor versus a paralegal. I'm not sure another (laughs) prime example, but the point I'm saying is one person will type the text the other person invents the text. So working with an architect, one could hope that you are getting a response to a site which is both tailored for that site rather than just redrawn over and over. From my experience also, that that drafts people, as Ben said, tend to uh, rehash the same things and they may not actually be up to date with what the council regulations are. Yeah, they get different sites and they will just sort of try to put a similar drawing on that same site. Uh, I think an architect will actually custom design something, make it much more unique, use that site to the highest and best advantage. I do like the the analogy of a solicitor and a paralegal. Solicitor and paralegal. So Ben, for people that are looking to obviously build wealth through property, Lloyd talks about in the book, Positively Geared Duplex Developments as a great tool to sort of break beyond the typical mold of just buying investment property after investment property. There's a few reasons why, Lloyd, which you possibly can shed some light on in a moment. But in your vast experience, um, having probably worked on, I'd imagine, a whole variety of projects from freestanding home through to medium density apartment constructions, what's the most important things that people should be looking for before they embark on a big project like that? I, I agree with Lloyd that the uh, duplex is an excellent tool to move forward in terms of your financial stability. Whether they're side by side or under and over would need to be considered in terms of first floor, second floor. But generally speaking, the ability to you know obviously buy the site and have two titles on the one or strata titles or company titles or whatever the case may be on the one site is an excellent proposition. The things you'd be considering is you know how does sunlight enter into those two dwellings, the yard space that they might have, access to those amenities of the site. So it's very important to consider the site in terms of its topography as well. I remember when I did my first duplex that I just had the plans, I had the site and I just went to a builder and the builder had a drafts person. They just sort of did the, the, the design there. When I submitted that into council, uh, the council actually came back making a few requests and one of them was uh, they wanted the sun to come in a different way to the living room. So they actually asked for some plan changes along with the topography, um, I guess with the way the property itself would be uh, positioned on the block and everything. So I think if a little bit more planning was done with, I guess, maybe an architect or something a little bit more experienced up front, um, I wouldn't have had those sort of delays with that initial investment. Alex, I remember when I did my first duplex and I just engaged a builder and the builder just used their own drafts person to do the plans. When we submitted the plans to the council, the council actually came back and requested a number of different changes. And I think the drafts person was a bit inexperienced and probably just put something that was a little bit stock standard on site. Luckily, it was actually to my benefit that the council requested some changes, which included having the sunlight come in a different way and stuff like that, because that was to my benefit. But yeah, we did have to have those changes because uh, the plans weren't done to council's liking in the first place. So Ben, we've previously um, had a 
I had a local builder on and it was great getting sort of their side of the, the overall process in, in development. I'm going to ask you the same question, which we asked them, which is basically from your perspective, how important is the relationship from your end with a builder? Uh, is it essential if you're doing projects for a client that you're working with the same builder? Is it inconsequential? What well, are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are, and it might surprise you, in line with Lloyd's book, I would suggest that the architect and the builder are separated and that once the architect has provided the advice, like a head consultant or expert advice on things like sunlight and maximising the site and windows, directions, views, then the documents are finalised. And then those finalised documents are given to a builder to provide a price and then the documents are not changed. That would give them the best outcome in line with the philosophy of Lloyd's documents. And in terms of digging a bit deeper into why that'll give the best outcome, is that purely because... Because in any development, you want to divorce the relationship between people who could create friction. There could be friction between architects and builders in that the builder could be delivering the project not exactly as per the documents or not to the specification or not doing a good job. So an owner may wish to engage an architect to oversee. I would rely on the builder's reputation. I would look at what the builder has done. I would look up references of the builder and their performance. I would say, here are the plans. Please give me the price for these plans. And then I wouldn't make any changes to those plans. Given the fact that one should be able to rely on the fact that expert advice has been sought and doesn't need to be revisited. It's a really good point, Ben. And I know, Lloyd, you speak about in the book, the different kind of building contracts. We discussed that with Todd previously. If you do get this right, so let's say you engage Ben and get everything finalized to, to his capacity, that does enable you to, to then go and, and possibly negotiate a better contract too, doesn't it? Because you, you're minimizing the need for variations. Oh, absolutely. It's the same thing that we've talked about even in the last episode, minimizing variations. If you've got plans that you're happy with, you take them to the builder, you get them priced up and that, you know, they give you the price. And like with most of the stuff I do, we work on a fixed price contract. So it eliminates all surprises and, and stuff like that. Look, essentially it can really avoid having a lot of variations and stuff down the track. Just know what you want, know what you want in that property upfront, probably more so for your sort of your dream home than a lot of your investments as well, because uh, this can take the process a bit longer. And you've got to realize when you're doing an investment that you don't want things to be drawn out for too long as well. And it's a good segue into my next question, which is building upon what we discussed uh, previously with Ziggy. You know, there's obviously two stark contrasts between building or designing, I should say, uh, whether it be a duplex or an apartment development site versus a dream home. Now, Lloyd talks a lot in his book about the end goal is the dream home. How do you find that process feels? Have you worked with clients on building a dream home before? Is it a different sort of experience that the customer goes through compared to when it's purely down to the, the bottom line? Yes. A dream home will cease to become a dream if you wander too far away from the commercial reality anyway. Dream home has far more emotion built into it, uh, whereas you shouldn't be emotionally attached to the dwellings that you're producing. However, the dream home, you would be. And um, depending on your level of attachment, even in the dream home and the depth of your pockets will depend on whether you go broke or not. So over the years, a lot of people have said to me, you can't overcapitalize on this site. This is a great site. Well, that's not correct in my opinion. You can overcapitalize any site. Yeah, you can. You can capitalize in any, absolutely any site if you try hard enough. Yeah, ab absolutely. So Ben, we touched on briefly before draftsman versus uh, arch an architect. Um, to a legal capacity, what does that actually look like? In terms of the difference between architectural training and draftsman's training, um, there's quite a large difference in that 
One is architects are a university-based degree system. And to my understanding, draftsperson attends a TAFE course. I think the TAFE courses are either one or two or a number of years long. And an architecture course, I can't think, currently runs at five years. Subsequent to finishing the university course, if one wants to be registered, then you've got to go through further training in relation to that, which normally takes over a year. You're looking at six to seven years for an architect to be registered. And that then gives the architect the capacity to be able to get professional indemnity insurance. Draftsmen can't get PI insurance in the same way that an architect can. That is the biggest difference between the two legally and would be the biggest benefit to a client doing a project in terms of their capacity to be able to have an avenue of recourse against the design itself. And in what instances, just staying on the legal tangent for some people that might be listening and in the back of their minds have been a concern or just a thought that's been hovering, what are some of the things that I suppose in in your field you need to make sure that you're doing or not doing to avoid any instances of recourse? Well, it comes down to the systems you have operating in your office and you can go from very few systems up to, you know, Australian standard versions, ISO 9001 systems of quality control. However, somewhere in the middle is probably the place to be for cost and mitigation of risk. Lloyd, over the, over your past two decades building your portfolio and helping you know so many others do the same thing, have you actually been faced with instances during builds where you've needed to sort of decide who's more appropriate to engage in the design process? Occasionally, but generally, it's a matter of really checking the area the uh, and the builder because sometimes builders themselves actually have a good architect on board. Um, others just have you know maybe just a drafty. They call them drafty, but you know draft person. And you really need to look at what they have designed. It's a matter of really looking at their designs and whether they can actually do custom design stuff or whether you do need to make sure you engage an independent architect. And it depends on the standard that you're trying to create. And what I mean by that is not that sometimes we choose to do a good one and other times we don't, but depending on the area that we're building in, if we're building a premium quality because we're surrounded by premium homes, then we're going to really want to do a you know a really nice custom designed home that might be a, a double story duplex and, and all sorts of things with all the bills and whistles uh, as opposed to some areas and you get away with something that's a little bit more um, on the basic side. I've heard of many instances over the years where an architect or a designer has delivered plans to a builder and you know they've sort of got them and said oh wow you know this should be fun putting it all together. Obviously beyond just designing something which looks great obviously you guys need to make sure that it's a functional it's feasible from a structural perspective too is that correct? Yeah well that's what in a nutshell is called the word experience. So one would need to go to an experienced architect who is familiar with how to put the plans together such that they can be readily constructed. And in terms of your involvement with council, how important is it for you to stay abreast of changes to local development protocol and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, it's very important to remain up to speed with the latest council requirements. And these days, in terms of the internet and looking at council's development data on the internet, All the councils have quite easily followable set documents. You can get online, look up the various standards, look into how the the property is proceeding, look at all the DCP requirements. It's much more transparent now than it ever was in the past. And by transparent, drawing on your past experience, what did that look like in terms of then to now? Well, in the past, you had a set of documents from council you might buy over the counter, stick on your shelf, and it just stays there getting its dust on it. And... If you don't keep going across in person to council to pick up various documents, 
you may well not have the latest documents. Now, in one way, that might have been quite advantageous because the planner on the other end didn't know what the latest and greatest was either. So you might get a stamp that actually was quite beneficial. But now the transparency that the internet's created is that there is no place to hide in terms of the current documents. They're all on the website in one way, shape and form. And the approval process can be monitored by the owner through the portals that exist for the various DAs. And you can see what documents have been submitted, see what negative responses might have been uploaded. And you can see whether or not your architect has actually responded to those queries. Yeah, I, th I think that's great. That portal is actually really good uh, because it actually keeps uh, people more accountable. I think it, uh, particularly you know, builders and architects and anyone submitting plans need to be more accountable because people can log on. And, and for all our clients, uh, we obtain that link to the portal for them, give them access so they can, they can actually track their development application through council. If there's been any requests for changes, uh, they can see that and they can see how that's been actioned and everything. So I think that's really good. So that transparency is really good and that'll, that really helps keep people on track. Staying on the tangent of the, the DA process, uh, Ben, how often is it for somebody that, let's say they're fresh to, to, to building or to renovating or to anything within this space, how often should somebody expect that they might have to go back to council or that you might need to go back to make variations to plans that you've prepared? An interesting question, Alex, in that say I've been doing this for 30 years and say in the first 10 years, it was 30% other information and 70% plans. So when I first started doing plans, you drew the plan, you wrote notes on the plan and you put it into council. Now the whole process is inverted. The plan is about 15 to 30% of the work and the consultants reports, which go with these plans is about 70 to 80% of the work in terms of its coordination. Because council now want a lot of reports to go with the various building plans, including everything from energy efficiency through to shadow diagrams. So there's a lot of bureaucracy in other words. Now there is. And there's a lot to stay abreast of. You could possibly find if you're doing a simple duplex with a builder who has a draftsman, which there's nothing wrong with, you, you may well be spending 90% of your fees on reports and submissions and council submission fees and 10% on the plan. And just looking at that design process using sort of the percentages you've given us, let's say you were building a block of 10 apartments, right? And obviously, you know, there's the building code permits that there needs to be certain procedures around, um, you know, fireproofing and all of that. Is that part of what you guys do or? Yeah. Alex, as soon as you get to an apartment block, you have to have an architect sign off on the apartments as part of the state environmental planning policy. So either the architect will put on a blindfold and sign off for you, or you've actually engaged them to review the document against state environmental planning requirements. And that's a really good point, isn't it, Lloyd? Because I mean, it just goes to show, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have been aware of that information. And I think it's great, Lloyd, particularly, you know, bring it back to the dream team. You know, it's about emphasizing the importance of having the right people in their respective roles that know their field really well and actually allows them to give you that advice. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because if you, if you get the wrong advice or anything like that, it really delays things. I think the other thing uh, that's a good takeaway here is when you break all that down, and, and Ben's right, there's so much information that's required with DAs these days, and that draws out the time frame for approvals, because often people say, well, why can't we just get approval in two weeks? But uh, it just takes longer than that. And, you know, we can be waiting three or four months or, or longer for a development application approval. There's just so much stuff, and it's got to jump through hoops and have different assessors look at it through council, and there's so much stuff for them to get through. And then, of course, they've got to advertise. That. By that, I mean they, they put, it, put the notification out so they can ask if anyone's got any rejections. 
for objections, sorry, for the DA and everything like that. So there's a lot in that process, which, you know, we sort of all sort of do on behalf of our clients, but often, you know, people don't really realise the extent that's involved in that. And Ben, I mean, will you obviously set that expectation with the client depending on what they're trying to achieve and to give them a timeline? From There's ways you can do that, but given the nature of the way these planning documents and planners work at council, it's probably best to break down into a simple table, fully complying, no problem, medium ability to comply, push the envelope, or might be a bit hard to get approved, but you're getting an extra 10% on the property. And then I would let the client make up their mind as to those risks. And in your experience, where do you find, you know, you mentioned just before that, you know, that extra 10%, where does that 10% typically exist? If I were engaging you today um, and I said, look, Ben, you know, I want you to design, whether it be a duplex or, you know, a small apartment block, because this is uh, what I've identified in this area, would be a great tool to sort of build my wealth or, you know, provide me with passive income, assuming I can afford to obviously manage the building and holding costs. Where does that 10% hide typically in your experience? Oh, that 10% hides within the architect's interpretation of council's envelope controls and parking requirements generally. That is where you'd hope an architect would deliver you not only a better design, but more floor space at the same time. Lloyd, obviously, when you're looking for clients looking to help them buy an investment property, you know, me on the other side of the fence, you, you know, all those things, as Ben just mentioned, they make a big difference, don't they? All, all the little one percenters. Absolutely. And when it comes down, I mean, to an investment property, it comes down to the numbers and you've got to make sure that you're getting, you know, everything done for the best numbers, that you're going to get the best return, but you're also making the highest and best use of the land because at the end of the day, you don't have an efficiently performing property, then you're not going to get the, you know, the best numbers in terms of rental return or equity out of that or sales price out of that property. So all those things up front really count for a lot and try to try to keep those, those costs down, but you don't want to cut costs too much because that could cost you more in the end. So having the right people on your team to advise in the first place is really important. And Ben, how involved will you guys be in terms of obviously giving some guidance around building costs as a construction cost? But before they get to that point, do you advise your customer on, okay, well, to do this, this is typically what it could cost you to do, so on yeah. and so forth? Yes. I mean, I think architects these days are advised not to typically try and get too involved. Although I will note on some websites and some architects that I see, they've got extensive building cost information, which I think maybe they should steer away from. Just keep in mind that last 10% we talked about may well not be worth the effort. So for instance, a Metricon project home is a very well thought through carbon copy for a site. And whether you're going to get 10% more, whether you're not, you may not get 10% more value out of the 10%. So therefore, a project home or a project home duplex on a lot of sites is the way to go. If you've got difficult sites where the site slopes more than a metre or say it sloped three metres front to back or it had some other set of controls like heritage or some other thing you were involved with, if you're in the city, etc., then an architect would be a desirable. So without shooting architects in the foot, the process by which Lloyd is discussing in the book is geared more towards the project home, I think, or a builder producing a fairly standardised yet maximised product. That's good, Ben, because I mean, that's quite an honest answer. And, you know, it almost feels a bit counterintuitive, you know, for an architect to say that, okay, depending on what you're trying to achieve, it might be better to go down the avenue of looking at a project build. And obviously, it's very much contingent. There's so many variables and moving parts Lloyd, to investing or building in an area, but it's it's an interesting comment Ben makes. And it's actually very true. I mean, a lot of the, the stuff we do are built by project builders 
we do obviously get things tailored for every block, but they still can often be pretty standard, particularly if you're on a smaller budget, because if you're on a smaller budget and you're in an area where the demographics command, you know, not to spend too much, then that works well. But getting back to what Ben was saying in terms of sloping land, I mean, some of the best returns uh, we're getting is when you're building near the water or right on the water in certain locations, but they're very sloping and you need to get things custom designed and things and you can't just get a sort of a project home. It's not going to fit on those sort of blocks. Uh, so they're, they're a lot of the things we're doing at the moment. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Really need to look at the area, the demographics of the area and what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah just pick up on Lloyd's comment. So I would suggest that the dream team or the team of consultants you get around you, you actually use as consultants. So for instance, a solicitor may well give you high level advice on the sale contract, on the property boundaries, on easements, et cetera. An accountant might give you a high level review of the tax implications, um, how to maximize the return on the site, deductions and that type of thing. But an architect could give you a high level overview of whether the draftsman's drawings are actually on the right track. I think one of the pitfalls from of property developers is when they start to convince themselves of their own information. And at that point, they lose the ability to self-analyze. So the dream team should be used to ensure that you're actually on the right track rather than starting to fool yourself in your own mind. So that the point was that the dream team doesn't need to be used at all times through all processes, but can be used to add value at specific times. And a astute investor would learn over time how to use those individuals at the appropriate moment. It's a really good point you make, Ben. And I think Lloyd, particularly when you're trying to build wealth through property, um, you know, it's so important from investment perspective to work on the numbers. And Ben said, if you get sort of caught in your head and you start to think that, you know, you've worked it all out, that stops you from making the right decisions. That's very much the philosophy you take, Lloyd, when you're working with your customers, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And I agree with Ben that, you know, using your dream team as consultants to, to advise when you need them, and it doesn't have to be necessarily all of them every time, but certainly taking advantage of them and bouncing ideas off them uh, when you need to, even in between projects or, you know, you might be doing something, thinking about something else, just, just asking the questions and getting a few ideas there. Just building upon the various ways that we've referenced this dream team over today's podcast is also having obviously good mentors. We talk about having the right mentors for somebody like yourself that's been in the industry for 30 years and you know you come from a, a family that's obviously incredibly well entrenched within the world of architecture. In fact, we'll probably be hard pressed to find <laughs> anybody with three generations more. There's probably only a handful of you guys in the country. Who do you look for in terms of mentors or who who did you in the past? sort of look up to in terms of your journey and allowing you to deliver the best experience and professional advice to your customers? Yeah, well, the question of mentors is an excellent one, Alex, I must say. Um, there will become a time in your life where you your mentors have either died or you've <laughs> exhausted their ability to provide you any more information. But if I was focusing on developing the philosophies in Lloyd's book, my mentors would be the experienced persons on the team. And that would include a solicitor, but one who's familiar with development, an accountant who is familiar with developments. And obviously, if you ever had access to a person like Lloyd, personally, then that would be the ideal situation. But other than that, you need to look around for mentors and you need to develop those relationships as best you can. Yeah, I think that's um, a good point, Ben. And also, I like to think that when you're seeking out a mentor, you're, you're seeking out someone who's achieved what you're trying to achieve. Um, and that comes back to are you using an accountant then uh, not just someone who's, uh, you know, I guess knows a bit about development, but someone who's actually got property themselves. So they, they've got some skin in the game. Same as the solicitor, they've got to be really around it, know, know all about property. And I think that's important with any of them. And as we've covered before, Alex, even if you're using a buyer's agent, 
you know, someone who's got a portfolio themselves, it's, it's like you're not going to go and get your car fixed by a mechanic who's never fixed a car before. So all these things, you know, get mentored by consultants and alike who have actually got experience there. And, you know, education is a lifetime thing. So, so seek the right people out and keep learning. And Alex, to seek the right people out, you've got to be prepared to ask questions which might be uncomfortable. And those questions may well be, so what properties have you developed, Mr. Accountant? What properties you've developed, Mr. Solicitor? Where are they? I'm going to drive past and have a look. And that might be somewhat embarrassing, but I would say that is exactly the thing to do. I totally agree. People ask me about my portfolio and uh, I'm very open about that. I'm also open about the mistakes I've made as well. And I'm uh, very happy for people to drive past my property in Blackwater if they want. <laughs> so, you know, things like that that I've mentioned in the book. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. I think you need, to, you need to have skin in the game and you need to be really open about it. Some great pearls of wisdom, guys. Just to close off, Ben, in terms of your personal journey, has, has there been someone that you attribute a lot of your success to? Is Obviously, mum and dad would have been a big source of inspiration. I attribute my success that I've had to self-discipline, which comes from, I think a lot of people receive that from their parents. But the greatest lesson I would say for people is to continually reassess and cross-examine what they're actually thinking. Because what I find is that people, they start to tell themselves things and they start to believe what they're telling themselves. And what they're telling themselves is that quite wrong, but they believe in it. So the ability to self-analyze and re-question what you're doing as you go is critical to success and then adjusting to those thoughts. Rewrite the narrative. Uh, no, look, Ben, that's been really, really great and really insightful. And uh, no, we really appreciate you coming in today. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for your time, Ben. Thank you.